baby Got a home that's built on lies My mama's working in the kitchen Daddy's out there with a wandering eye So that was Dan Raza with the song Payday from his album Two. And here is Dan Raza. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Steve. We're here live on the historically significant and culturally rich Denmark Street in central London. They turned down the music a minute ago, but since they turned it back up. So I'm sorry about the, uh, any noise we have here. So the reason we're here, I think it's to talk about the 12 Bar Club and live music and Dan, his story. So Dan, who are you? Who am I? Wow. <laughs> That's such a tough question, yeah. isn't it? Philosophical. Yeah. I was born in Aylesbury, which is just outside London. And I'm a singer-songwriter. I've been playing in... I've been living in London for over a decade now and been playing music all that time so that's how we met back in yeah. the back about five or six years ago i think yeah i first saw you play at the betsy trotwood in the basement there and you were playing with jamie jamie shaw great drummer i lost barbara bartz yeah or basha or uh lyle you had a great band i don't know you probably still do but they were on the scene weren't they and it was great really a head turn of that um, but that's where I first saw you play. What was that night called? That was a, that's a known night, isn't it? I'm trying to remember what night that was. I think that might have been with Gabriel Mourinho. That's it, Lantern Society. So there's only a few nights going now. There used to be before the gold rush, my one, Chalk Farm Folk, Lantern Society. What else is still going? I think that's what we're going to be talking about here. That you like and that yeah. listeners can check out music at. Well, in London, I think uh, there's a really cool little place in Camden called the Spiritual Bar. I know it, yeah. Tiny place. Tiny little place, but they seem to have a good uh, empathy for this kind of music and He's live a music. Brazilian mm-hmm. That's right. And it's great because it's in, you know, Camden's such a rich musical, it's got such a rich musical history, and it's also my favourite part of Camden, away from the tourists by Chalk Farm and Primrose Hill. Yeah. So, what are your other favourite venues that are still open? that people could go and check out. I know the Gladstone, is that still going? Well, you know what? The Gladstone was a bit like this area we're in on Denmark Street now, that it was, um, that particular pub was a forecast to be sold off to developers and made into new flats, but they had a petition, which we all signed, but we didn't have much hope for. And then at the very, very last minute, it was saved. But unfortunately, the promoters had moved out by that time because they were living above the pub. Yeah. But they've started doing music again with different promoters, and it's, it's doing well. It's not the same place, but it's... It's owned by a couple, isn't it, now? I've, I've been in there. It's a funny little place. I've only played there once since I've been back in England, but it's run by an Indian family now, yeah. so they do Indian roasts. But oh, they, cool. they do do live music. and a coo- What's in an Indian roast? So an Indian roast isn't a curry? Well, they gave free food to the performers, but uh, right? we weren't eligible for the roast. We, uh, <laughs> I got fish fingers. Well, you, didn't, you weren't good enough for them or something. <laughs> I can't say that. Uh, but yeah, that place, what's cooking in Leightonstone? Right, so that has this kind of Northern Irish guy called Steve. Give us the fucking money. Right, I, 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 right? I've done it once. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think he liked us. I think uh, we sound checked with Mullen Kintyre, and I thought that pissed him off. And then that was it. I don't know if you know this as well, actually, but I've been trying to interview Lane on the podcast because he's Denny Lane's son. Did you know that? My one. He said, well, he said he's going to do my one. Okay. As mysterious as he is. He's mysterious and shy, but he's a great player himself. Lane Hines. Lane Hines is unbelievable. I remember the Green Note used to do a, a blues session night, which I used to go down to, which was the first time I saw him. And, you know... He blew us all out of the water. He was his voice, his playing. He has that old timey 
authentic nature to his playing somehow. He sounds like he's from the Delta. Yeah. He sounds like he's a black guy from the Delta. And he, he just plays it with that intensity as well. It doesn't just sound like it, a guy who's been studying it to, you know, the yeah. death inch. He, he plays it with that feel. He, he's amazing. Yeah. When I feel so lonesome Do you hear me when I'm home? When I feel so lonesome Do you hear me when I'm home? Who've been driving in my turplay for you since I've been gone I haven't flashed my lights, mama I won't even blow I haven't flashed my lights, mama I won't even blow And so I actually have run this night at the Monarch for seven years or something now, five years, something like that. And we often, because a lot of my songs are in A, and that's my voice range, and then Emily's above, it's the perfect thing for what we do. And so we play Mullen Kintyre, and we've been playing Mullen Kintyre every month for three years, and he never mentioned, oh, my dad wrote that, <laughs> you know. Right. I, think, I think maybe Paul wrote the choruses, though, and... Uh, Denny Lane wrote the verses because I saw something with Denny Lane the other day on the Steve Jones show. Do you know the Steve Jones? That. That's fantastic. You're yeah. the second guy that has said this to me in the past week. Jonesy. Jonesy's jukebox. <laughs> There's something nice about Steve Jones as well that's just no pretension. He's not selling anything. Even when the artist is there flogging their album, he can't even... What's it called again? And he's burping into the mic. You're listening to Jonesy's Jukebox on KLOS. It's nice and warm out. I came in on the motorbike. Barely. I got here. I was very late today. I kind of panic. I go to this breakfast joint around the corner and I'm just stuffing my face knowing I've got five minutes to get here. I live on the edge, Jack. I also am guilty of stuffing my face. Uh, and I do it even when I'm not in a rush. Well, me too. Even when I'm not late, I've been told... I inhale my food too fast, and I say, what's too fast? I think it tastes better. Me too. When it goes fast. I am with you, Jack Black. Anyway, so yeah, we got the Gladstone, because basically what we're going to talk about here is, you know, music venues, this venue, maybe get some stories from both of us about the 12 Bar Club. So have you got a song or a performer that made you do it? Write songs, play music... Do you have anything where you try, you think, I'm going to try and do that? Well, who was that and what sort of songs was it? And we'll play it. Yeah. I mean, well, that was an easy question because I had an epiphany. I wasn't super interested in music up until the age of 11. I was driving with my dad back from football training on a sunny day and he had the radio on and Roll With It by Oasis came on on the radio and it did something to me it just went through me like electricity in the way that nothing else ever had before probably ever has since I went to Woolworths that very day in a town I was living uh, Leighton Buzzard bought that single and from then on I was obsessed I was obsessed and I bought I was lucky my 12th birthday was the following April and I got my first guitar so you learned to play at 12 with Roll With It I mean, that's a song that just, like, made me, like, obsessed with music and, like, I don't know, it just did something to me. But in terms of actually playing, I got this guitar. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what to do with my left hand. I just, I was strumming away with my right hand without touching the left. It's actually quite hard. I don't know if I could do it now. Do you think you could learn now? Because I've been trying to learn piano on and off for a couple of years. It takes a lot of dedication. It's not that easy. 
I, I think it's especially if you've got no music theory no, experience. I haven't either. I haven't. I, I was lucky that my parents got lessons from me when they realised probably how hopeless I'd be without them. Um, but you know, up until that point, I had any hadn't had any lessons, and I had no idea. I just had no idea what to do, how to make this thing sing. You know what I mean? And it is a hard instrument. It's physically difficult. Yeah. And it's just difficult to understand, you know, you've got this big plank of wood and it's divided into these two things you do with your hands. No, some people are naturals. My old bandmate was a natural, my old guitarist used to play with, I was certainly not, I had to work at it. I'm the Frank Lampard of um, guitar playing, you know, I, I think I had to work really hard at it. So do you think Lampard was not, what's that analogy mean? <laughs> I guess I mean sorry for people who are not no, no, into right. football, but um, I don't I don't know. Are you a football? F- I, I'm supposed to be. I'm brought up that way. I know who Frank Lampard is. Okay, I mean there's always these really young, talented players you hear about. There's a guy called Ravel Morrison, yeah. who was Alex Ferguson, the man, famous Manchester United manager, said was the most talented player he'd ever worked with. Right. And he'd been at, he'd been like over in Sweden recently in the second division. He hadn't had a club for a, a while or something. You know, just players who never used their potential properly they were super talented well someone like Lampard apparently he was the first there at training he was always the last to leave he always stayed behind working on his free kicks he just had that single-minded dedication and passion and just I guess vision for what he wanted to do and that surpassed any kind of natural talent he had he just worked on it because he believed it and he wanted it so much I guess apologies to Frank for my like likening myself to him but you know that's kind of how I've always felt about music I loved it so much that I believe my love for it has surpassed my kind of technical limitations and potential you know you have to be whenever someone's asked me how do you learn to play guitar I sort of say you have to be obsessed with an album or a band you know so that was the same for me I got it was Morning Glory Oasis and I got the tab book that had the chord so I knew where to put the fingers but for a long time I didn't know that you had to press the strings down and I was just fucking about doing the shapes and just muting a few of the strings so I was the same it was Oasis so I will play Oasis roll with it and the thing is this is my favorite first 30 seconds of a track ever is that true yeah so there's a there's a riff obviously the drums are amazing coming in and it's just a really for me great intro and there's that like that sandpaper vocal you like you say the music intro is exciting and stuff like that and then that voice comes in which just cuts through it like a what do you call it a uh, a saw blade or something yeah. like that and yeah. it's so exciting yeah Welcome back, that was Oasis. <laughs> Alright, so Dan, the 12 Bar Club here is currently being obstructed by some sort of van, but it's, it's uh, boarded up here. This was my favourite venue anywhere, actually. Very unique venue. What's your, how did you get your first gig here, and when, and when was that? I actually can't remember the first time I played there, but it probably would have been... I don't know, about 10 years ago or something like that. And like you say, it's, I, I love this, this street anyway because obviously this is where the guitar shops were. You know, I went to university in London yeah. and it was where, you know, I'd sky off or, you know, I'd go after my lectures or whatever and just hang around guitar shops. Also down the little alley, which we're looking at to the right of it, yeah. by Hank's shop, there was a wall which was like plastered with adverts yeah, yeah for bandmates and need I, a drummer need a drummer need a drummer pretty much yeah and I remember putting up a few and having success I, I got at least two violinists from that from that war and it was just a place I hung out I remember meeting Pete Dockett you with Kate Moss yeah. down that alley yeah um, what happened there well he wanted my autograph I, <laughs> yeah what was he doing I don't know, he, he was probably looking for drugs or something, right. I don't know, I didn't ask him, I just remember thinking how tall he was, well no, I probably thought, well yeah, that, that for sure, he was super tall and I was surprised. What she look like in real life? Yeah, she, she looked nice, yeah, she looked, you know, she, 
just looked cool. So were they in the 12 bar or in Hank's or what were they doing? They, he was coming out of where this car was right in front of Hank's and he went down that alley. So there used to be a little uh, horrible place, well smelly place, you know a real... Enterprise uh, Studios, a rehearsal place. Exactly, yeah, it's the sort yeah. of bottom of the rung rehearsal yeah. studio, you know where yeah. the, the equipment didn't work properly. But what a location. What? No air conditioning, yeah, stank. It, it was the real deal, it's the kind of place where you booked out for four hours, sweated, played horribly and then went for a beer afterwards and went yeah. to the 12 bar. Yeah. It was great. So I don't know, maybe he was going there. I don't yeah. know. Well, funnily enough, there used to be, um, in the Enterprise Studios, there used to be a guy working in there who, wor- who was an actor in Biker Grove. Do you remember that show? Yeah. And so... Adrian and Duncan were in there. Yeah. Or Ant and Deck as they are now. Yeah. What do you think of Ant and Deck? I think I've had enough of them. I don't have a TV, so I'm, I'm not overexposed yet. I feel like that as well, but they're in a, they, they showed up in a bank advert recently, and it was like, okay, you know. I did see the billboard. Yeah, yeah. it was everywhere. Yeah. Anyway, there's an actor that used to be in Biker Grove that was working there about 10 years ago, or maybe it was only like 2012. And in my job, when I was signing venues, I went and met him, and I didn't know it was him. We came across Enterprise Studios, and I was like, do you know there's a guy from Biker Grove that works on the desk? He goes, yeah, that was me, man. <laughs> But yeah, I first played here in 2003, and I came in with my mate Monk, and we had a demo CD, and we gave it to this guy called Andy. Yeah. Do you know that guy, Andy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your guy that you had on your show recently, did he found the 12 Bar Club with Andy, that guy? I've got a feeling Andy was the main promoter there. Yeah. Um, I don't think he was a co-founder, so Phil Ryan, who I had on the show, was the co-founder, also yeah. the co-founder of The Big Issue. This Andy guy liked our CD and we, got, we played a few gigs in there. And it's a very interesting um, venue. It's unique. Unbelievably unique. It should have been kept. Because you know they kept the 100 Club. A few people pitched in. I don't know if it was Ronnie Wood or someone like that. But this venue should have been saved in a way. When we first played in here in 2003, there was nowhere to park out here. And we had a van that Monk was driving. And we had all this gear. And it's actually very stressful. You know how a gig can be. And there was actually crackheads everywhere in 2003 down here. Because this is like quite a convenient cul-de-sac. And there used to be a phone booth down there. And that little divot down there, it was very cracky. So I don't know if Pete Dockett was on that vibe. But it's an interesting area because there's a lot of scuzz in central London. And now it's obviously becoming something else. I also myself did a gig here where I, I was playing, it was a solo gig, supporting someone else, it was like six o'clock on a Sunday. I looked in the audience and Ewan McGregor was just sitting there. And then afterwards, there was all these actors in the bar and it just felt like, it epitomised London in a way at the time. It's just, it used to be one of those places, isn't it? It sure did. And I think the street, you know, up until now it's been redeveloped, so we'll see what happens afterwards, but there's been no chains here, no Starbucks. No, you know, cafe Nero there. Well, that ne- you know, until recently, that stuff never used to be here. So this was the place we're talking about now, the 12 bar, where I'd play, you'd play, but also Ryan Adams would play. Jeff yeah. Buckley had his first yeah. gig. Joanna Newsom would play there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was that wonderful kind of, like you say, London venue yeah. where it would be completely open to grassroots acts like ourselves, yeah. but also bands who were like being written about in the media just starting to bubble yeah. right up to the top i mean ryan adams played there in about 2009 so way after i didn't Heartbreaker. know ryan played in borderline as well which is also just gone well this this was a secret gig to be fair yeah. so it wasn't an advertised one but yeah you're right and borderline's gone there was another place up the road called the Astoria's gone yeah um do you know what's still here is the basement of the Spice of Life. You played in there? It's my first ever gig here. Is it? Mm-hmm. What happened there? How did you get the gig? What sort of thing was that? It was the open mic. Oh, okay. They used to have a fantastic uh, Monday night oh, Monday, yeah. open mic run by a company called Up All Night. And, oh, uh, yeah. That's Phil. Phil, Phil Taylor. Phil Taylor, that was right. He was a good guy because he um, had the open mic and then from that he booked other gigs. And I remember with it was with Phil I was doing gigs with Alex Lipinski who's been in a band with Bonehead he was on this show actually and Bobby Long do you know Bobby Long I played on the bill with him a few times but that came from this guy Phil so your first gig in London or first gig ever was that 
probably my first solo gig well definitely my first solo gig ever was there and that was back in the days when I'd have to get very drunk to play right so what's going on with this guy that you had on your show Phil so he founded this and is he doing any other venues or I suppose I should ask him but um, no he, he had a passionate view about all this didn't he he did so he's involved in this uh, campaign Save Tim Pan Alley and so I don't know how many people listening are aware of the history of this street but yeah this used to be the heart of the music industry in the UK. This is where all the publishers were. You know, next door to us is a, uh, a music shop called Regent Sound, which is a, uh, used to be a famous music studio. It's where the Rolling Stones recorded their first album with Phil Spector in the audience and also Gene Pitney. This is where Paul Simon came to hawk his songs. Homeward Bound and uh, Sound of Silence were both rejected here by publishers. This is where the Sex Pistols used to live and rehearse. In one of the places down here, there's still graffiti that they left on the wall. So much history. You know, mm. the Kinks wrote a song called Denmark Street. Yeah. Elton John. Elton John wrote your song here. Yeah. In this street. There's so much history. Small in Faces. Street. Small faces, Ronnie Lane and Steve Marriott used to meet here because there was a cafe called the Gear Condor. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, okay. which was a famous hangout. And uh, David Bowie, apparently, that's where he got friends with the guy who became the char- who inspired the character Ziggy Sardust. Right from that particular ca- cafe, Gear Condor, yeah. which is where I'm talking about. Ronnie Lane and Steve Marriott would hang out, meet up, and hang out. It's wow. so much history, music, British musical history. You know, Bob Marley bought a guitar down this street. Stevie Wonder recorded here. This, this is kind of a lot of heritage. It would be a shame to just, like, see it turn into, I don't know, a kind of Disney-fied... Well, place. Hanks is still here. We're sitting in Fernando and Wells, which I, is... A, if you're ever on Denmark Street and you want to check this out, it's just a big window for me where I can sit and, like, look at this wild bar club and think about my life. 60-60 sounds there. I spoke to the owner a few months ago because I was going to start I was going to run a night in there and it never really happened but it's a guitar shop where they have a bar license in there so I still think there's a future and I I believe someone told me that the 12 Bar Club itself is going to become a new music venue you hear that? yeah kind of corporate way but it's you know all the same I suppose it is better than a Starbucks for me yeah, I, I've got a feeling that it will nest, be nestled amongst the Starbucks. But yeah, you're right, the developers did make a pledge that they'd kind of preserve some sort of the heritage. But you can imagine these flats, as, it's just what it is, isn't it? I shouldn't complain too much. But you know, the, these flats that are, or these buildings that are getting redeveloped right now will be luxury flats and we're going to have the big global chains move. And it'll just be a different place. And that, you know, that's just, just the way it is, I guess. You see those guitars up there? That's uh, where I used to get a guy called Jack who fixed my guitars. You know Jack? No. From Bolton. Spoke like Ian Brown. And I used to... All my guitars I bought on this street. All my... I buy Tanglewood guitars and I've got them all... Most of them in Hanks. And I used to get him to fix them upstairs. So this street is a big part of my life, really. And thousands of people like it, I'd expect. I think there's just little things they could do if it does become all flats and stuff you know Matthew Street has that statue of John Lennon and there will always be a cavern but it's almost like okay the Beatles are the biggest thing ever but there's actually probably more from this street than that street so you know I I suppose the Minister for Culture or whatever has to become aware of what this street is because it's actually quite lucrative in tourism as far as I can see you know I think it's not all about business but there's ways to restore it I feel like yeah we'll see I mean there's a street called Carnaby Street which would be the wrong way to do it in my opinion that was a yeah that's like a fairground vibe um, exactly yeah this was obviously a real buzzing place back in the back in the 60s it's kind of in you know tried to kind of honour some of that tradition but in my opinion it has no vibe at all well it's still fashion because it used to be where all these bands all these mod bands and stuff bought their threads and now you know there's a Levi's down there there's a Ben Sherman there's a Pretty Green so I don't know this generation of young people it would be Hackney wouldn't it where they would buy clothes from a thrift store vintage store and maybe it's the same for music maybe there's a, a, another street right now where would you say that would be that is would it be in Dalston or something like that where there's music venues and young people going out to see music or is that just is it not is it not existing really a new 
something that's come up in the last 10 years is there any equivalent there must be um, for the music I make I honestly don't know because it's uh, you know it's not at the height of its fashion at the moment sort of rootsy yeah. storytelling singer songwriter music so the yeah. venues tend to be you know here and there all over scattered all over the place but I'm sure for like maybe electro music or whatever yeah maybe East London yeah. definitely has a vibrancy and also it's still the rents are cheap enough that places can set up there aren't right yeah well somewhere like central london where we are now it's more difficult mm. let's play a song or get a snippet of a song what songs do we know that have been recorded on this street uh well not fade away by the rolling stones was recorded next door regent sound um how do you know that dan you're just a school of this your wikipedia shark <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got a st- I've got the worst memory for most things, but yeah. for music, I've got a steel trap memory. Yeah, I don't need um, lyrics. You know, how Springsteen has a teleprompter. You know, we both saw Dylan the other day, right? He didn't have a teleprompter. He didn't. So, didn't. He didn't. That's because no one could hear his lyrics anyway. Right, right, right. <laughs> Maybe he's just growling. All right. So, what else do we know has been recorded on this street? Uh, Fade Away is not, not one of my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> well, that whole of the first and second album, I believe, uh, by the Stones, well, I think the Kinks recorded a lot of their early stuff down Denmark Street. We'd have to look up exactly. All right, let's, let's have a bit of the Kinks and we'll be back in two secs. So, Dan, Spirit and Roots is your show. How did you come to do that show? I was outside. Uh, I left London uh, for a couple of years. Uh, I think it was the summer or spring of 2017. And while I was away, I was coming up with all these creative ideas. And um, I decided I wanted to do a, a YouTube series at the time. I thought it was going to be interviews with songwriters where I could just basically talk to people I really admired and just their brains about how they did it you know whether that's from the way they played guitar whether that's how they came up with their lyrical ideas whether they fin- how they finished their songs if they did it in one day or whether it took them months to finish you know all this stuff that kind of I'm always wrestling with and I'm always constantly fascinated with and evolving my, in my own process I wanted to do that both with people who I know in my contemporaries like yourself and peers who I really admire and then also people I admire who are I didn't know, and I and I went to New York during that time. It was last year, 2018, and I did two interviews, including with uh, one guy called Benjamin Shoyer, who uh, I found through a TED Talk. Really talented guy, and uh, I did an interview with him. And like with yourself, I kind of kept putting off the editing. It, yeah. it was like, and I still haven't edited it, but and I will at some point. But anyway, so I came up with this idea and then I got back to London in 2019 this year. So you did that in New York. What is it about the creativity of that city 
where new ideas because I feel like going there at the moment but I haven't got a passport not because I'm a criminal but it's just because it's expired and I, ref- I refuse to pay 80 quid to just be a citizen but um, well, I don't know how we've ended up doing this but it's got to be us I feel like that provide a platform for musicians that open a venue I think I'm probably going to do that that run a night and we're the musicians but isn't that the way it should be maybe with record companies and everything it shouldn't really be twats should it it probably should be people like Elton John or whoever so you came up with this idea in New York and you've done that episode and now you record it in London, what is it, every week? Yes, it's twice a month. It goes out on a second Tuesday. And is that a lot of work? No. Okay. Luckily not uh, because I don't have to edit it. It's, it's a live show, so uh, which you're going to be on, I'm looking forward oh, to, good, yeah. later this, this which year. Which you don't have to edit it because this episode might it'll probably come out this year. No, I think it will, but editing it is a big deal. Yeah. yeah. So... What's the best thing that's happened doing the show? The worst thing? What's the funniest thing? Because obviously it's a new thing for you, right? Yeah, sure is. Uh, if, you fight, if you don't want to disclose, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Probably won't tell you the worst thing because I'll spare the names. But um, <laughs> People are difficult. Musicians are not easy. Actually, pretty much everyone has been an angel. Uh, so, yeah, I've got to be honest. Most people have been fantastic. Uh, pretty much everyone. Um, but the best thing, I just love it, man. I love playing my favourite music. So I do. A, I have a featured guest every episode, yeah. and again, I dig into their sort of creative process, which I love learning about and stealing ideas. You know, I'm just jamming with them about that. But I also really just love playing my favourite music and yeah. talking about it. And you know what you're talking about, like how do I know all this stuff? I'm just so passionate about it, and I just yeah. love talking about it, and just it just gives me a legitimate avenue to geek out on, you know, music. It's just more interesting, though, isn't it, than going on about Brexit or you know, whinging about uh, I don't know, or watching Love Island. <laughs> I think it's good to it's a blessing to be interested in something, you know. If you're not interested in anything, you're probably not interesting. I don't know. So you've had no mishaps where somebody's farted on the microphone or everything's broken down where'd you do it you did it in Kilburn mm-hmm. there we go. Uh, there's a great little studio which you'll see in Kilburn exactly and in terms of mishaps yeah I'm always ma- I, I, there's a studio manager with me and he's great at uh, making sure nothing goes too wrong but you know I press the wrong I queue up the wrong track occasionally and like play it and, and other tracks half I'm not technical at all so are you could you make your own demo and like mix it and do a multi-track recording because I can't that's why I've spent like my whole life's money making albums <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to demo my next album now and for the very first time mm. I'm demoing it through a garage band uh, was before I used on the phone no on a, on a laptop okay. but that's the first time in the past I would just you know record it in one take and then send it to somebody via back in the day by a tape but now via something called a, a zoom Oh, Zoom mic? Yeah, it's called H4 Zoom. Uh, but now, like I say, for the first time, because I want to do it to a click track, these demos, I'm, I'm doing it through GarageBand. So it's my very first How one. come you're doing it to a click track? Because I don't want to spend too much money in the studio. And so if we can do a lot of the preparation work in terms of trying out what kind of drums work, what you know, all, all kind of little overdubs in advance before we get into the studio. Yeah, it helps to have a click track to do that. Uh, so that's that's the idea. Yeah, it's weird. I uh, we're doing some gigs playing Neil Young covers at the moment, and he recorded the album Comes a Time solo, and then added drums and all that. It sounds outrageous. I I, I can't imagine that Neil Young recorded solo to a click track though. So. There are other ways to do it, but I'm the same. I'm in this routine now of doing an album in a day and just getting everyone in the room and just doing it, which is extraordinarily pressured. <laughs> but yeah. I'm getting the energy of a band. So how are you going to record this album and what's this album about? Um, is it too early to say? No, we've been pre-producing it in terms of going through the tracks, me and the pianist Laurie, for the last months or something and um how we're going to record it we don't know probably going to do it live but like i say everybody will know the songs in advance via this process we're doing now the demos and what the album's about i think it'll about be about these last few years of my life so yeah you went to so how come you went in in 2007 you just pissed off with this scene or you wanted to get some more travel or well my band broke up during the making of my second album and that kind of took it out of me a lot um and I was kind of hitting a brick wall musically. Mm. Brexit happened, yeah. which, from a selfish point of view, scared me because I was like, I always had a 
pipe dream of living abroad and the, the, the thought of that uh, opportunity of living and working in Europe slipping away kind of scared me. I just decided nothing going on, you know, I had no girlfriend, got no kids, my parents yeah. thankfully were and still are healthy and I just thought this is the time to do it, you know, pack up and go up. I needed a, I needed a re-injection of life and energy and I'm so glad I did it. Where did you go? went all over the place man i spent a lot of time in the u.s and the southeast especially so the carolinas and tennessee made really a, mm-hmm, made a lot of just on your own guitar getting on a greyhound bus like a country song i took a lot of greyhound buses and uh yeah those things are a trip i tell you yeah um, what happened what was the best gig what was the most because i have so many stories about america i don't know what it is about it it's just something always happens somewhere. Even if you get it wrong. Well, I was talking to someone yesterday about when I was in Austin. I went to Austin in August 2007. And I remember being in this motel and opening the door. And it was literally like opening an oven. It was like 110 degrees. And I was looking for Ian McGlagan and all that. I don't know what I was doing there. Um, his, birthday, his, his house for his birthday, McLagan's. His house in Austin? Yeah. What happened there? Well... He was there. Um, I remember going to use the toilet, you know, in his house, because mo- mostly the party was uh, outside in the... I mean, it was huge. It was out in the sort of country outside Austin. And I remember going to use the toilet in the house and walking down, you know, the hallway, and there was just all these framed pictures of, like, Rod... You know, just home-took pictures, you know, not, like, professionally done ones of Rod Stewart and, you know, all these famous people, you know. And it, it so nothing was... happened in the toilet. You didn't block his toilet. You, did, you weren't with a woman in there. There was no drugs. No, no. <laughs> How did you end up there? How did you meet him, and uh, or were you just trespassing? Uh, <laughs> that would have been good, wouldn't it? No, I, had a, I was going out with a lovely girl at the time, and um, she, she was from Austin, so um, yeah. she got invited to the party, and uh, I, I tagged along. No, her father was. Okay. Yeah. I um, recorded my first album with members of Ronnie Lane's band, right. Slim Chance. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Hart produced it. It was the accordion. And, and again, how did this happen, Dan? got a good story that is a cool story isn't it well anyway t- before I tell you how that yeah. happened um, I, you know, I'm a big Roger Stewart fan especially his early stuff so I used yeah. to badger Charlie you know I used to ask him all kinds of things and poor sod um, and anyway I used to ask him about Rod and he always kind of brushed me off a little bit and then finally he told me <laughs> he told me that no one particularly of that crew liked uh, Rod very much I think Ronnie Lane was quite embittered I think a lot of the faces were because Rod obviously went off to have his own solo career while he was with the faces and I think he was hoarding songs maybe I know there was some bitterness but anyway how it's complicated, are, it, it is complicated I mean he did have the ambition and it's all it's, it's very complicated I've been in bands with people that well you know when are we getting a deal what's going on here you know and it's like I, I don't know if that's what I'm trying to do here so especially in this day and age it's quite complicated but Rod wanted the, to get in the limo with the chick and he you know and the deal and he did but he Steve made... Marriott was playing in these pubs before he died, you know. Yeah, so some poor people, Marriott. And he wasn't any less talented, so... No, but Rod made better solo albums by yeah. far than Stevie Marriott. Unfortunately, yeah. Stevie Marriott's got one of the best voices ever. Great play. You know, the Stones... Is um, he the best white singer ever? Maybe from the UK. From the UK. I mean, that's difficult there. to say. No. He's the best white R&B singer, is he? Uh, he's up there. I mean, Rogers has got to be up there as well, yeah. in my opinion. And we, we've had a lot. Frankie Miller from uh, Scotland's another great soul blues singer. Peter Green yeah. is a fab singer. We had so many back in that day. I mean, it's Robert Plant. Steve Winwood. Winwood, yeah. I mean, Van Morrison from Northern Ireland. Van Morrison, unbelievable. I mean, there's, there's more. I can't even think. So it's tough. But Steve, uh, Stevie Marriott, mm-hmm. incredible. And apparently... Richards, Keith Richards wanted him to be replaced, Brian Jones, or maybe Mick He did a rehearsal, Taylor. so they That's say. Right. I read that Marriott was being very well behaved, and then he just came out of his box, and obviously you can't upstage Mick. So apparently that's the rumour of what happened. I don't think it would have worked anyway, would it? I have no idea, but... He's like, way too good a singer. Well, exactly, I mean, I think Mick Jagger's a great vocalist in his own way, but yeah, yeah you're right, you wouldn't really want someone who's that good a singer, kind of... No bustling away just waiting to grab the microphone you need the lead singer to be the main man so I can kind of understand that
But you had this band with some of Slim Chance. Yeah. And so that's your first album. Yeah. And the first album is just called Dan Raza. Exactly, yeah. Very imaginative with the <laughs> album title. Where did you record that and how was that recorded with them then? So how did it happen that you met them and all that? Um, how it happened was uh, Charlie came to one of my gigs in Lewisham. He was invited by a guy called Jazzman John, a great poet from uh, Lewisham. He came down and he liked my music amazingly and he invited me to come you know hang out at his house and quick you know from I think that very first session he said should we make an album and we did and we recorded that in, the, in his house in his basement studio in, in uh, Brooklyn in Lewisham live which you know was a big learning experience for me right you know in terms of playing with a band you know i think i think it shows on the record i think there's some glorious moments and i think there's some moments that i would dearly love to uh yeah. re- revisit and do again but you know yeah. it came out all right how do you mean that you'd like them to be different well, we just recorded it live you know charlie was old school and he'd just right. do it in one or two takes and right I wasn't, you know, people can hear it for themselves. You know, so I, someone else kind of took control there in the album. He was the producer, yeah. you know, and he was very sort of, he knew what he wanted, <laughs> mostly to get it done as quick as possible and do it live. And, you know, he had that way, he just wanted to capture a, a right. feel. And it, he wasn't, you know, he's not a singer songwriter himself. Great musician and a great guy. Yeah. But for me, you know, I like a lot of precious singers and songwriters, maybe. You know, I wanted to, I would have liked to have redone the vocal and all this business, but we just did it live and it was just like, okay, that's good, got a good feel, let's move on. Yeah. And, you know, it's just that kind of thing. And it, I think I had to I had to let go in order to get it finished. And it ultimately is a record of a period of time. And, yeah. a, and that's what yeah. that album is. And pe- Weird, that, isn't it? That's why you got to record it. you got to capture these things. Like, you know, this has just happened with my mate. I have all these videos, I have all these songs, I have all these conversations, so uh, just recording things, capturing things, it's worth it for me. I completely agree. I completely agree. I mean, yeah, man, we're going to be listening back to this uh, in yeah. five or ten years' time. and Good, yeah. You know, we'll be like, oh, my God, why did I say that? I don't agree with that anymore. But it was <laughs> who we were at that minute yeah. in time, and there's a beauty in that as well. Yeah, it's yeah. who we are, you know. Well, my first albums... I'm a bit American-y, I'm a bit twangy. I was listening to a lot of Gillian Wells, a lot of Ryan Adams and Neil Young. And now I myself am trying to do this kind of transatlantic voice. If there's a word that can be compromised and make you sound either English or American, I get rid of it. You know what I mean? How do you tackle that when you're writing songs? Are you conscious of your accent or anything? Oh, you know, I'm so influenced. You know, I, I grew up... Yeah, I didn't have a great singing voice when I was a kid, but I grew up singing along to Rod Stewart records, Bob Dylan, uh, Neil Young, Paul Gordon Lightfoot, so it's super. And they were doing American. Rod was doing American for oh, a lot. Yeah, exactly. Even the Beatles on a lot of yeah. their stuff was... It sounds better musically, I think. I mean, people say the way that the, the vowel sounds are extended, Americans, you know, ah, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's better for the boys because the, the wider you open the mouth, the longer you can hold yeah. notes and stuff, so it fits that soulful way. I mean... I used to be more self-conscious about it. It's just the way it is. I'm part of that tradition of British singers, you know, including John Martin and all those guys who just, you know, are so influenced by Americans that, yeah, we do, you know, it comes out in our voices. Uh, in a way, I'd love to be more of a English sounding singer, like Nick Drake say, but, it's, you know, it's just the way it is. It's, it's my influences, and I'm, I'm not going to change it now because it's so ingrained in me. And it's, it's the music I love. Still the music I play now, and it comes across in my radio show. It's predominantly American so mm. and like I worked in an Irish bar for a few years where the pronunciation is similar because obviously bluegrass is very close to Irish and they're always going to pronounce the words different and that's why our accent stands out so much in America because there's a certain pronunciation of the words that we do completely different past last yeah. cast you know bath it's very different so I try to do yeah words that don't where I don't get caught out almost 
Um, but in my early albums, there was a lot of uh, when she smiles back at me type thing, you know. And uh, I reapproached it. So, how did you approach the second album, knowing that the first one, you, it was more rehearsed, more takes, more, you know, disciplined, and you, you were more in control? The second album, I thought was going to be easier. <laughs> it was harder. <laughs> Unfortunately, so. Um, you know, You'd have to go if you don't want to. But I know you had that great band with Jamie and Barbara and all that, yeah? Exactly. And unfortunately, the band broke up... Uh, mid-song. <laughs> Mid-song, yeah, kind of. Uh, and, it, you know, it just didn't... You know, it's like a marriage sometimes. And we, yeah. we probably, unfortunately, we... We, we missed our moment. It went, it went on a, a bit too long, partly because we were changing studios and changing producers, engineers, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it just, it just missed its moment. And then I ended up having to patch the album together kind of thing and mm. re-record some more tracks solo on my own. Mm. And it, it was a hodgepodge. It was what... Uh, there's a Ronnie Lane and Pete Townsend album called Mixed Bag, I think. Or maybe it's a Richie Havens album. But anyway, it's what Rough it mix. Like. Rough mix. Yeah. I don't think the Richie yeah. Havens album... But yeah. my, my album felt like a mixed bag. That You know, it was really like a compilation of yeah. stuff from that time. And it, it was hard work and it was meant to be easier. But I produced it myself and I think, I think it's all right. Yeah. And this next album, again, my aim is just to make it as easy as possible and as yeah. fun as possible. It should be fun, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The day after you've done an album, it's a euphoric thing. Because you've had to like... I heard someone the other day talk about it like it was a cre- not very poetic. It, actually, it was Nick Cave. This is very poetic. He said it's like having a creative wee. You've needed a wee for two years, and you store up all these songs, you rehearse them, and then you do it. You're under a lot of pressure, and then afterwards, it's like ah, uh, that's kind of the reason why we do it. When you release it, that's a whole other bit of drama. But what do you think's the right model for live music? How do you mean? Should it be pay to get in? Should it be a tip jar? what do you think because obviously the musicians ideally need to get paid you know the bar need to make money what would be I mean I don't know if you have any opinion on this but you've obviously played a lot of gigs and a lot of deals and a lot of you know feelings about that is there anything that you would prefer as a musician uh, I would definitely prefer to get paid yeah. I, sometimes I think some venues need the foresight of thinking that something might not necessarily have immediate uh, payback but you can build something you know in terms of an audience and a reputation where you, you know so if they're not making a huge profit immediately doesn't mean that it's not worth doing you know sometimes you've got to build an audience and a reputation and a sound and a, a vibe you know a lot of the great places 12 bar for one they had a fiver in didn't they in general yeah, I mean... You couldn't just walk into the back room there. No, I think what they had partly in their favour as well was a late-night venue. You could walk in there at 2 o'clock in the morning and still yeah. drink in there for another couple of hours. What a shithole it was upstairs. Remember the toilet? <laughs> I do, yeah. But that's the way it should be. Yeah. It's a real rock-and-roll old-school yeah. place. But, you know, in terms of... Uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, people don't want to pay any more to see a, a, a band or an artist they don't know. That's just the way it is, and I understand that. We need to, like, uh, protect and support and preserve and encourage grassroots music because that's partly what makes England, you know, a really yeah. great country. And, and, and it makes people good. You need to be able to play live. You get found out sooner or later somewhere. Yeah. What I've also noticed is that this So Far Sounds thing, people who are under the age of 30 now, they want to go if they don't know where they're going. Do you know what I mean? And they don't know what it is. Yeah. If they know that they're going to this music venue, it's not the same as before, whereas something got known, the 12 bar is a hangout. And I think our mindset is like, oh, there's, like, in a minute we could go to Spice of Life, right? And there'll probably be something going on downstairs. But now it feels like the millennial consumerism of music is almost like has to be some sort of experience. That's the word experience, isn't it? It's like the secret cinema and yeah. all these kind of things. I mean, it's, I'm, I've completely missed out on that. It doesn't, uh, doesn't resonate with me, but I hear you. For me, a good song or an exciting artist is the experience for me not something that I can put on Instagram or yeah. tell my friends about to make them jealous I mean mm. that's cool I get I get yeah. the instinct for that and I, I know why it's exciting but for me it's about the music right if the yeah. song's crap but I've like ended up in <laughs> in a old factory in East London it's still oh that's cool yeah. but when, I want to see good music man yeah. I want to be like blown away I want to be yeah. like scared I want to be excited I want to be screaming to music I've never heard before I mean that, there's nothing like when it when was the last time you? what was the last gig where you felt something like that anything where you've been impressed by something recently 
definitely impressed. And there's a great guy who's going to be on my next podcast called Stag. He plays the accordion in a, and he, he's just a one-man band, a Scottish guy. And he's mm. just great. He's writing these great poppy indie songs, accordion and one voice. His name's Stag, S-T-A-G. Where did you see him playing? I played with him at the Lantern Society in okay. the Pepsi Trot, wouldn't he? You know, he just stood out. He's writing really good songs and he, he's really good. Mm. After there's something Clear the cords from round our chest Everything is not forever So we can't only do our best All right, let's do a quick fire round if we can. What was the last music you bought or downloaded or streamed or whatever? Yeah, I got something yesterday by a guy called Jacob Collier. I saw him on Tiny Desk and okay. I liked one track. All right, what's, the, what's your favourite gig you've ever done? I'm going to jump straight in and say I did my album launch for my first album, my debut album at the 12 Bar Opposite. Yeah. What's your worst gig? Or, uh, uh, <laughs> how long have you got? Is there any... Yeah. So for me, I played with Emily in Boston once, and it was the first time I met her mum, and it was in Boston, and we played somewhere, and the sound just wouldn't work. And you know when you have to do the sound yourself? Yeah. And we ended up basically busking to Emily's family, which was really <laughs> weird. And then um, Mahoney, my first band, we played at the Student Union Summer Ball or something. Yeah. And the thing is about being a musician and being professional and getting the job done, is that you can't just be like Keith Richards or Liam Gallagher and turn up and be pissed and not know how to work the amp you're using and stuff like that. So that's what we're fed as a consumer, or maybe back in the day with rock and roll and stuff, right? But, you know, at 20 years old or whatever I was, I'm eating a burger as I'm going on stage. Monk needed a piss, so he had to run off and push in front of the queue and tell some girl to fuck off so he could go in and have a piss and the sound didn't work we were taking about 10 minutes between songs because we couldn't tune and we couldn't you know so that was bad anything that you can remember where this is seriously embarrassing or this is I don't know if if it's really embarrassing you might want to say but a couple of things come to mind I remember I did what they call the happy hour in uh, Austin I can't remember the place somewhere in Austin somewhere my memories thankfully mercifully tried to block out anyway the place was fine but there was no one there because it was five o'clock and i'm sure people were working or avoiding my music i don't know but anyway uh no one there and i just you know you kind of when you're playing there's no one there it's kind of especially when you're younger i was about 22 23 at the time whatever personally you may be a bit i was a bit demoralized but i just remember the sound guy even left and it was just like i don't know and it was just like what am i doing exactly and then recently i had a gig uh, i thought it was going to be a really good gig it was down by the river in london i thought it was going to be great but the sound guy was awful he had no idea Mm. and i I very rarely experienced that and it, it, it just sounded just sounded awful and now we've you know it's not our first rodeo you get more it's like drinking wine you get more and more like oh i'm not having this <laughs> can't hear anything you know and when you're younger i think you just plow through it and i think it's professional now still to plow through it but you just you're just disappointed right with festivals and this was kind of like an all-day festival yeah there's no sound check no. So you just so you had a band or solo? No, just solo. So it should have been really easy. Like I say, the guy I don't know what was going on with him. Maybe he was on acid or something. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> it takes balls, you know what I mean, to do a gig where it doesn't go because very many people could do a Mariah Carey go. Nope, this is not what I agreed. But you have to adapt and get the get the message over of your performance, you know? Yeah, I think a big lesson for me in recent times is realising it's not just about me, you know, and how I'm feeling and yeah. my experience. You know, people have given up, even if they haven't paid... People to, are listening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even yeah. if people haven't paid to, to watch you, you know, they're still giving you their precious time, really. 
And sometimes you have to work for that or at least honour it by giving your best even if the conditions yeah. and circumstances are right. So, And it makes you feel better afterwards if you know at least you've given it your best shot and you've tried to make that connection which you know, you're trying to do in your own music. Because you know? yeah. that's what it's about. It's a relationship and a, con- a dialogue between the audience and the performer and, and, and that for me is a big lesson. That helps you get over your stage fright for a fact because you're realising it's not just about me. You just want people to enjoy it and that's something for me helps me enjoy it you know do you look at the audience while you're playing like in the eyes because that in England that can be awkward because people don't want to look at each other anyway when you're performing and you're singing if you look at them sometimes they feel awkward do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so do you I've never felt that in America but you know that science of the audience when you can see them do you look at what do you do you look at the back of the room what do you do I mean until recently I used to have my eyes shut and my fringe right down to my yeah. lip unfortunately you know Neil Young style just out of shyness and nerves yeah these days yeah I try and like make some sort of contact because again I think it's good to kind of acknowledge an audience and mm. let them know your present kind of thing and sometimes it helps you communicate a message of a song but now I don't go for the whole big eye contact there's a guy called James McMurtry one of my favourite writers in America and he's very intense and I remember <laughs> when I was in uh, San Marcos yeah. and he looked out in the audience you kind of like you, you would break that eye contact because you were a bit sort of scared of it kind of thing and it's, was he a confident guy off stage or was he a bit complicated and it's it something he put into his act or was he that confident in real life I mean you have to get him on there to ask him but I think uh, I don't think he's the most confident guy and he's, it comes across slightly confrontational right but it, it sounds it, like an interesting performance though it's definitely uh, electric and intense intense is probably word he's got a voice like Lou Reed sets a kind of music oh, like, like Steve Earls baritone yeah and the lyrics are very sort of you know uh, descriptive and narrative based and it's intense and it, it kind of works but it, I mean I looked away out of embarrassment you know after a while uh, <laughs> and yes so, I don't know man yeah it's easier if you're in a big audience like Springsteen and you don't make exact eye contact with someone right but mm. when you're in a small venue oftentimes you do isn't it with, yeah. you know your audience is smaller and you're mu- that much closer where y- you do get a specific individual's eye it contact. feels like a sales job especially when it comes to Springsteen he wants to get everyone up and moving I mean, obviously, no one's doing this with singer-songwriter music, but it might not—it might not have to be like twisting shout vibes, but moving in some way that they're listening and they're feeling something, you know. But what I've noticed about America is that a lot of the musicians are also actors, so they have no problem looking at people, but then they need to be rehearsed, and you know, there's certain. There's obviously acting's a whole other world, but it's yeah. a script. Brits are much more music orientated, I find, yeah. and therefore a bit more complicated when it comes to this stuff. Looking yeah. at people in the eyes and this yeah. sort of stuff. So, anyway. a lot of great songwriters like Steve O and Guy yeah. Clark. I've got their bootlegs and I've seen them live. And yeah. back in the early days of you know discovering those kind of things, I remember being surprised that they would say the same thing right. at numerous concerts, like you say, yeah. a script. Yeah. But I get that. You know, now I do well, it. They've worked out what works. This line always works. Exactly. It's hard to improvise every yeah. night. Yeah. You know, you've got to yeah. fill the gaps. You've got to keep an audience yeah. interested, especially if it's one guy and a guitar and the songs maybe aren't so upbeat. You know, mm. you've got to do what works. Mm. All right, I think we better wind up because they're throwing us out of this restaurant. What's something about you that people would be surprised by? Um, I like football. And who do you support? Tottenham Hotspur. Are they any good? Yeah. What's the best football match you've ever seen? Uh, Any time Tottenham beat Chelsea is a happy moment. Yeah. That always makes me uh, go out the pub with a spring in my step. Okay. Right, let's play a song to finish. Have you got any uh, guests that have been on your show you'd like to play one of their songs? Who would that be? Yeah, I guess a mutual friend we have is Trent Miller. Why don't we play one of his songs? Okay, cool. All right, it's Trent Miller. Thanks for joining us. See you in Vegas. Remember to tip your waitress. Be kind to each other. And bonjour from me and from Dan. Ciao. Yours to take 
Sun is gone, echoes of an awesome weeping. 